talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willer Skin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Another scorcher in the hammer today. Do what you need to do to keep your curlies cool. Here's Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML. We've been screaming. Everybody's been screaming and yelling, except the Prime Minister, about uh, doing something with gas, uh, uh, the price of gas. And obviously, this affects everything in the supply chain, including what you're getting at the grocery stores. And it's probably the single one thing they could do, considering our gas prices are so overinflated with taxes and carbon taxes and such. Um, that uh, it's the one thing they can do to provide immediately relief, immediate relief, and it would apply to everybody, not just the people filling up at the pumps, but going to the grocery stores and the companies that are trucking things to and fro. Uh, even in the United States, President Joe Biden has uh, certainly suggested that that's what they are looking at. Uh, however, it seems that Justin Trudeau is is completely deaf to uh, what uh, Canadian taxpayers are saying. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Fa- uh, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director, Canadian pa- uh, Taxpayers Federation, and is with us now. Franco, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me on today. So it seems that, uh, Franco, like we're all talking about it, but the Prime Minister's office is is mum on all of this, and uh, he, he seems to be, the Prime Minister seems to be uh, avoiding this discussion. Yeah, it, it really is coming off as tone deaf, isn't it? Because at least with the conversations that I've been having with friends, family, and and colleagues, it seems like just being unable to afford to fuel up your car on the way to work is is kind of the economic issue that is really harming Canadians these days. And and he's talking about making life more affordable, but but we're not really seeing any action from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Even worse, we're seeing him make these tough times even more difficult because during the pandemic, we've seen the carbon tax go up three times and he wants to continue to raise his carbon tax all the way up to 40 cents per liter of gas by 2030. And then not to be the bearer of even more bad news, but he wants to bring in fuel regulations, which add essentially a second carbon tax on top of it. So by 2030, we're looking at about 98 cents per liter of gas in Ontario in taxes alone. So we're already paying a huge tax bill. And unfortunately, the way things are looking, it looks like the tax bill is only going up from here. So um, let's cut to the chase here. Everybody's talking about this except the prime minister's office, including him, because this clashes with his climate plan and that he's actually hoping that this changes behavior in some way before alternatives are even available uh, to us. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Because you got to think at the end, this is what he wants. Is that true, do you think? Well, that is the whole goal of the carbon tax is is higher prices at the pumps, right? That is the whole goal of the carbon tax. And it's that it's something that I hope your audience remembers is that these higher prices are essentially the goal of Trudeau's climate policies, at least through his carbon tax. But I have two other thoughts on that. I mean, one is it, it just seems so detached from reality. I think the number one priority that of the Trudeau government should be helping with this affordability crisis where we see inflation at nearly four decades high. We have people who are struggling to afford to actually get to work. I mean, talk about how are we going to recover our economy when people can barely afford to get to work with these crazy gas prices? And in that vein, we need to understand, or at least Trudeau needs to understand, that driving is not a nice to have. In Canada, where distances are so large, driving is a need to have. But second, Mm. and and to the crux of the environmental issue, uh, you are not going to help the environment unless you have a a, a global plan. Well, what we're seeing going around with other countries is that they're reducing fuel taxes at the moment. You talked about Biden, who is now pushing for gas tax relief. Well, he's not the only one. The United Kingdom just announced $8 billion of fuel tax relief. South Korea just cut its gas tax by 30%. Germany is cutting taxes on motor fuels. The Netherlands just cut its gas taxes by 21%. Then you've got Italy, Ireland, India, Peru, Poland. You have a bunch of American states. They're cutting gas taxes. So 
Other countries are reducing the bill at the pumps, but Trudeau continues to raise it. Not even to mention we should be producing this cleaner natural gas or the various types of energies to get these heavy polluters off of uh, high carbon uh, energy. But, you know, that doesn't seem to be part of the solution. We could actually be helping here and generating revenue. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And we can't forget that, you know, the Trudeau government's policies that have been hammering our resource sector, that have been making it harder to attract investment, is a part of the blame with these high prices, right? Mm. Because one way to reduce the price at the pumps is to increase the supply of the products that we put into the pumps. Um, but we've seen the Trudeau government, through its Bill C-69, the No More Pipelines Law, through its Bill C-48, the discriminatory tanker ban, by rejecting the Northern Gateway Pipeline, by moving the regulatory goalposts onto the Energy East Pipeline, uh, by essentially chasing away the Kinder Morgan Company and its uh, plan to expand the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We've seen policy after policy after policy make it harder to attract investment into Canada's natural resource industry, which uh, doesn't allow us to increase supply to reduce the burden at the pumps. It's uh, I've heard some say, too, that this is not the time for governments to be cutting taxes. They can't afford that uh, because of the global pandemic and what we're coming out of. That being said, uh, these carbon taxes and various climate change taxes were designed to clean up the environment, not feed general coffers. So is this just proof that this is just government, you know, green energy feeding government coffers? Well, let me just push back on that narrative, right? Uh, some people may be suggesting that this is not the time. No, this is exactly the right time on every single front to be reducing taxes. Okay, number one, we need to provide relief immediate. And there is no more immediate way to provide relief than for the government simply to stop taking so much money from the pumps. Tax relief can happen immediately. If they reduce taxes at the pump, if Trudeau reduced all of his federal fuel taxes, the carbon tax, the sales tax, the fuel excise tax, an Ontario family would today save $20 every time they fueled their minivan. So that would be immediate tax relief. But mm. number two, we see government revenues inflating. Yeah. We see government revenues going up and up and up because inflation means more money collected through sales taxes and other type of taxes. So actually, right now is the perfect time for the government to reduce taxes at the pumps. Franco Terrazano with us, Federal Director of Canadian Taxes, uh, Taxpayers Federation, talking about the Prime Minister and his uh, non-interest in reducing gas taxes while uh, Joe Biden and the United States are considering such a move. Franco, thanks so much for the time and insight. Be well. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Obviously, you uh, have heard about the stories of inflation. You're experiencing it, whether you're going to the grocery store or to the gas pump, whatever. Uh, and now we're getting more information in on how you are reacting to all of that. And uh, the vast majority of Canadian households, especially those with, ki with kids, are worried about feeding their families among decades-high inflation, according to a new study. Uh, and as we're hearing today, the inflation rate soaring 7.7% in May, nearly a 40-year high record. It's been 1983 since we've experienced uh, these sorts of numbers, according to Stats Canada. And a new poll from Ipsos conducted for Global News uh, earlier this month shows that 72% of families with kids are worried about putting food on the table. This is getting serious. Let's bring in Gregory Jack, Vice President, Public Affairs Canada for Ipsos Public Affairs and with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well. How much different is it this time, Greg? I mean, it, it seems that everybody's talking about this, that this is really having an impact compared to uh, situations in the past. How, what is this one like? Well, I think uh, this is a pretty unique event. I mean, a lot of Canadians who are worried about um, rising costs, younger Canadians especially, have never seen this in their lifetime. We haven't had this kind of economic shock with uh, increases in prices and interest rates at the same time since the 1970s, 1980s. So this is not like the 2008 recession. It's not like the 2000.com uh, meltdown. Uh, this is a lot more serious. And the numbers we see in the poll reflect that. There is widespread worry across the country uh, in all demographics, uh, but particularly, as you noted, uh, families, uh, folks with kids are, are really feeling the pinch. 
And it seems to be fuel energy at the core of all of this because it is used in everything, uh, whether it's the supply chain, uh, bringing things to and fro, uh, whether it's filling up your cars. This seems to be the, the, the central point of all of this. Yeah, I mean, costs are going up on, on everything from groceries to gas and transportation. Uh, and as you rightly point out, you know, the, those transportation costs uh, for fuel affect things like where your food's coming from, how much that's going to cost. So uh, it's a widespread thing, and it's driven by by increase in cost on things that are actually essential for a lot of people. You know, um, uh, food and driving for some people are not nice to haves. Well, certainly food isn't. Um, they're need to haves, and and so as we see with these numbers, uh, that concern is being reflected, and it's especially true uh, of folks who are in that you know uh, prime working year, uh, 34 to 55 years old. Uh, they might have a mortgage. They they probably have a house. They have kids. And, and they're really feeling this worst of all. Women are also uh, feeling the pinch a little bit more than, than men are, interestingly mm. enough. Is this enough to change habits? Or, you know, I mean, I, I remember reading something last week that said, um, uh, even though the, the gas prices are going through the roof, it's not stopping consumption. But as others have pointed out, it, it's, this is a need, not just uh, a fun thing to do. Yeah, and, and I think people are going to change their habits to a certain extent. Our poll showed that you know, some people are, are worried they're not going to have money for a summer vacation. Okay, that's a pretty easy yeah. thing to defer. Um, but they might be buying their food in different places. They might be trying to drive less. But as you point out, you know, for a lot of Canadians, the driving is is not a choice. It's it's a must do. And so um, people are going to change their habits as much as they can. But they're also going to do things like ask their employers for a raise. Four in 10 Canadians said that they would be asking their employer for a larger raise this year because of inflation. And, uh, and some folks are even looking around for a, a different job. So they're trying to, to manage the, uh, the problem by finding more access to, to money. Will that work? Are there jobs out there for us that are willing to pay more? Where are, is the pay boost coming from? Well, we, we see a record low unemployment rate right now. So there certainly yeah. are jobs out there. The question is whether or not they're the jobs that are uh, you know, high paying enough to, to give people the, the boost that they need. And, you know, I would suggest that a lot of those jobs are maybe are not. We, we did see the, the highest concern um, among Canadians over inflation is with younger um, or less, sorry, less educated Canadians. And, and in that younger cohort, um, those jobs are probably not going to be the high paying jobs that uh, that are gonna, really going to combat this. So it might work. It, it, it's something that people are considering, but they're also looking to government for some help. Right. You see in Alberta, they, they've uh, rebated or they've taken the, the gas tax down today. Mm-hmm. They announced an electricity rebate in Quebec. Uh, the government sent people a, a check. Other governments are starting to do different things, but these are small, small fixes. And um, this is a big problem that is not going to be solved by one or two fixes or, or rebate checks. You t- talked about how families with kids, this is obviously a heightened problem, uh, a more severe problem. What about demographics? You talked about younger people and such. Yeah, and, and you know, concern is actually uh, lower among older people, baby boomers. Number one, they've, they've been through this before. Uh, they've seen it. Mm. They might not still be paying a mortgage. They probably have less expenses uh, around working. But on the other hand, baby boomers could also be on a fixed income, right, where their, their income is not keeping pace with inflation uh, at all. So demographically, there is concern across the the country, as I said, um, and it is those with families that have the highest levels of concern. But there's there's not really a significant chunk of Canadians that are not feeling the pinch on this. Everybody is worried about it and everybody is feeling it. We've certainly heard there's like a a, a mass exodus coming with with various uh, forms of employment. I guess we've seen that as a result of the pandemic. And and up to like 30 percent of of Canadians are thinking about changing careers, changing jobs, going in a completely different direction. Yeah, no, our our poll did find that. And, you know, as I was saying, that's one thing that people might be trying to do to uh, to control their, their destiny themselves. Women are actually more likely to to be the ones who have said that they're, you know, changing or going to change their jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, what we saw down in the States around the, the great resignation, we might start to see a little bit of that here. And certainly the work from home that we experienced for the last two years during COVID is something that people want to see sticking around. That, of course, is one way you can keep your costs down if you don't have to commute. So uh, some of these factors are playing into it as well. And, and some of the things that employees might have thought were uh, less important before the pandemic um, and before this inflationary spike are now factors that they're going to take into consideration when they consider their job or where they want to work.
You know, it's interesting because we've talked about flexibility through the duration of this uh, pandemic, two and a half years, and, you know, how we've been pushed to do things that uh, we weren't necessarily used to do. Now, this has become the norm. Uh, many have talked about, you know, priorities have changed and such, uh, and perhaps don't want to go back all of the time. But you bring up another valid point, and that is cost. The costs of going back now, two years later, are a lot more extreme than they were way back when. So not only a shifting in priorities, but just realities economically. Oh, for sure. And, and you know, uh, going to the office has a number of costs associated, not just the gas. Uh, there's food, there's, you know, clothing. I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but uh, all my suits shrunk over the last two years. I don't know what happened. Man, uh, I thought I was the only one, Greg, that experienced that. I got a wedding coming up and I'm not sure how I'm going to need a few shoehorns to get in. Yeah, you and me both, actually. I got a wedding coming up, too, I'm going to be at. so. But these are all costs that are part of, you know, going to the office. And um, and I think people are looking for ways to save money on on things that uh, maybe they haven't had to put uh, put out expenses for in the last two, two and a half years that all of a sudden are back. And with gas the way it is now, uh, you know, it cost me 120 bucks to fill my, my very small, uh, uh, you know, Subaru cross-check the other day. And, yeah. and I can't imagine for folks who were driving in, in, into the office especially in the Toronto area where that commute is long uh, and there might be bigger vehicles. I mean, that's a huge shock, uh, the gasoline prices alone. Everyone's driving a pickup truck now, it seems, because uh, that's the price we're paying. Uh, Gregory Jack with us, Vice President of Public Affairs Canada for Ipsos Public Affairs, talking about Canadian households feeling the pinch. Greg, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. You're right. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Starting a family business is one thing, um, but getting into the space business as a family, that's another. Uh, and when it comes to launching satellites, some countries have their own launch vehicles. Canada is not among them. However, a husband and wife team from Ontario are aiming to change that. The couple are founders of Space Ride and have opened their own rocket factory north of Toronto. Their goal to make history as the first orbit, orbital rocket to launch from a balloon, meaning lower cost and on-demand access to space. Think like a private-like, uh, 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 think of a private Uber-like service for cargo from the Earth to the Moon and anywhere beyond or in between. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Sorab Hagigat is with us and Saharnas Safari, husband and wife duo and founders of Space Ride. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you're both doing well. Thank you so much for having us. I could not have done it better than what you said. <laughs> Thank you for the you introduction, know, Scott. Yeah, well, you know, this is fascinating because I think it's great anytime families decide to be entrepreneurial and go off into their own business, but not everybody's trying to get into space. So how did you even get here? How did you even decide, hey, uh, here's a good idea, honey. Why don't we do this? <laughs> so um, uh, the, the idea was Sorab's. Um, he got his PhD from U of D um, uh, in aerospace. And so he was monitoring space industry, but he got into other industries like um, driverless cars uh, when we were in the U.S. uh, before coming back to Canada and starting Space Ride. And so the idea came to him because he saw how other industries on the Earth are so uh, fast in their development and innovation. And in contracts with space, everything is super slow in space. Um, and so, um, and he recognized that that's the, that the, the problem is the access. The problem is not having this on-demand access to space and the prices being so high and so on. Um, and so he had the idea, I got my MBA. And so he wanted me to vet on the business side, if this is viable and if this is something that is needed in the industry. And after I vet that and put my MBA cap on, then uh, we decided to go for it. So is this a case of, and so Rab, I'll ask you this, is it a case of, hey, I can build these things. I don't need those big guys. This is a different model. This is a different template. It's exactly that, uh, that uh, as you said it, and it's basically combining all my past experience of developing software for various applications and realizing the power of software that can transform an ordinary hardware into something magical, and then putting two and two together that this thing is needed. I know how to do it. And now is time to do it. Is the ordinary hardware, the rocket part of it? Uh, the ordinary hardware is not the rocket part of it is the fact that uh, 
you by launching above the atmosphere, you can have a rocket that is so small and so optimized for vacuum condition. And by powering that with advanced software for guidance, navigation, and controls, now you have this on-demand delivery system for space. So let me ask you this, and, and either one can, can answer this. So I'm listening to this, and again, I don't know anything about the industry. You're, you're all much smarter than I will ever be. Um, but why isn't somebody saying, you know, come and do this for us? Why are, you know, we'll, we'll pay for this. We'll give you some whatever. Why do you have to go off on your own to do this? I mean, uh, others have had the idea of launch launching a rocket from from the balloon because the math uh, and the cost effectiveness is very obvious to people in the industry. Uh, they just mm. were not able to to do it because they didn't put the two and two that Saurabh mentioned. The guidance, navigation, and control is the the key to unlock it, and he's the expert on that um, uh, to do that. But in terms of you know. Uh, why we did it we just felt like no one else is doing it justice so we should how do you describe what your objective what your aim is to the average person what are you trying to do so you know on the earth we are so used to uh on-demand services we are used to uber and skip the dishes and Hmm. uh, amazon in space we don't have that and it's desperately needed. It's missing from the industry and it's desperately needed. Each project from, if you, if you even want to send a small satellite to space is gonna take um, two years uh, to get it to space. So, and a lot of money. <laughs> so um, yeah. th- we are gonna be this cargo delivery between the earth and the moon. Um, so if, for example, we're, we can only make synthetic hearts so that we can have heart transplant and not have uh, to wait for an organ donor um, in space because of microgravity. But it's not affordable if you have this expensive, very unfrequent rockets going to space. Mm. So you need something on demand that is cheap. And, and that's how you can make it happen. So there's a lot of potential in space that we are not realizing today because we don't have this on-demand delivery system. So where are you with this project now? At what stage? In a year from now, we will do our first launch. And the year after that, we will be launching to the moon. And, and is this with investors or is this as delivering commercial products up there? Clients want so, stuff up there. Yeah, yeah. So clients definitely want stuff up there. Um, that's that, that's going to be our customers. But we started with our savings. Then we got investor money as well as government grants. So that's how we have been funding the project so far. All right. This is an incredible story. We will have you back and uh, and talk more on Space Ride. Uh, Sorab Hagigat is with us and Saharnaz Safari, husband and wife duo, who are the founders of Space Ride. Uh, and the best way to describe it is uh, Uber for space cargo. We'll chat again. Thank you so much for the time. Good luck with this. Thank you for having us. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, every time there's a mass shooting, or probably not even every time, because that's, what, once a week or month or so, um, but certainly when there's shootings that gain our attention or, or make the media in some way, there's chatter about uh, gun violence in the United States, gun control, and whether there's an appetite for change. Is there anything different now? Uh, obviously, following uh, the Texas shootings and uh, in New York as well, um, it seems there's another great effort on to try to come to some sort of common ground and come up with some sort of gun control. Are we making any progress? Let's bring in reggie Cicchini, washington correspondent for global news and he is with us now reggie thanks for the time i hope you're well good afternoon reggie we've talked about this a bazillion times anything different here is there any legs on this what can you tell us 
Yeah, I mean, look, there there are legs here, um, and you know, you made that comment about mass shootings uh, in the United States and happening frequently. Uh, there were more than 250 of them uh, up to the beginning uh, of this month or a few days into this month. So it is a crisis mm. that has a grip over this country, and that is why lawmakers are working as quickly as they can uh, to try and get something done. And given the fact that there has been some form of bipartisan movement uh, in the U.S. Senate, at least, to try and get something on the books and signed and passed and done quickly. This is a monumental move in the United States, considering this will be the first bit of gun legislation um, that is dealt with across the United States uh, in, in, in three or four decades. It, it seems this discussion, there's one extreme or the other, either it's, you know, it's in the Constitution or, or no one should have uh, these at all. Is there common ground is, you know, because really in Canada, what we're talking about is, is simple control, simple rules and regulations, which seem to be absent there. Uh, is there that middle ground just to nobody's taking any guns away? There's just some simple rules we need to follow. Yeah. And look, the rules that they have to follow, um, you know, they run into barriers because there is still a constant you know, fear uh, from certain fragments of the right side that the Constitution is being trampled on if any gun laws are put on the books because they feel that that runs counter to the Second Amendment. But uh, when you have this kind of um, communication between Republicans and Democrats that say, look, there are things that we can do, whether it's closing the boyfriend loophole or whether it's putting more reviews in place for people who are under the age of 21 to buy a gun. You're not telling that person they can't have a gun. You're simply saying, look, uh, if you've done something that's broken the law, that's going to get in your way, or we just want to do further checks into your background. So it's a, uh, you know, a delay to obtaining a weapon potentially, uh, but not outright stopping somebody from getting a weapon. And that's why there has been some, some Republican buy-in. Uh, it seems that whenever there's chat of this, exactly as, as you were saying, it, it goes it goes right back to the to the uh, the amendment and such and, and the right to bear arms. Is it a benefit now for politicians to at least be having this discussion? Because at one point, if you brought it up, you were mud and you were gone, especially if you're a Republican. So is there a benefit? Is the tide changing that this could help you in your election process? Look, it could. Uh, the vast majority of Americans are in favor of stricter gun laws, and Republicans understand that. Um, I think Republicans also understand the politics of this country, though, in that if they are in a deep red state, a deep red city, or a deep red county, even if they are pro-gun or anti-gun, they're probably going to get elected anyways, and they don't have to focus all that much on something that may be a driving factor in a far more democratic part uh, of the country. But we still have to remember that the National Rifle Association still plays a significant role in uh, U.S. Po uh, politics, particularly on the Republican side. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of clout that comes from the NRA. That's why we're seeing some pushback to the Senate that the Senate Republicans that have opted to decide on this, uh, which is why in the House, when this makes its way to the House, uh, Republican leadership there intends to whip against this and tell House Republicans to vote against this Senate bill because it is politically unpopular within parts of the Republican Party, including the former president, including the NRA. So there's still a good chance this could all fall flat. It's not so much that it's going to fall flat because, remember, Democrats hold a majority uh, and then right, some yep. in uh, in the House. So this will pass and there will be some Republicans who break ranks. It's just the broad part of the Republican Party in the House is going to push back on this. It's not going to make a difference, though. So uh, what's next? What happens now? So this is going to likely pass in the Senate before the weekend. Uh, Congress heads out for a July 4th break, so they want to make sure that this gets done. It will head into the House where the Democrats have the control. They will try to get this passed as quickly as they can uh, and send it to the president's desk for uh, for a signature. And that is going to then enact these gun laws or this new bit of gun legislation that Democrats understand doesn't give them everything, but they say it's a first step. So this could all be on U.S. books uh, within a matter of weeks. All right. Uh, really quickly, I've only got less than a minute left. Uh, give us an update on January 6th, where we are now. This really seems to be getting traction now. 
Look, the testimony has been compelling. Uh, Republicans uh, are the ones who are giving this testimony, one-time allies of the former president, and it is getting harder for Republicans who are against this hearing uh, to have any legs to stand on to say that there is no there there based on what we've heard and based on the number of people who have now been involved in this um, in, in these hearings and new evidence that's come forward. The committee says, look, we may need to hold more hearings than we originally planned. This is likely going to run into July now with a full report due out in September, but this is growing increasingly more difficult for the president, the former president, to say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing was illegal when we now have new evidence that shows his own legal team was saying to him, sir, this cannot happen. Hmm. Reggie Zucchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We know that for generations, Canada tried very, very hard to erase Indigenous identity, culture, and strength. But even as residential schools were busy teaching indigenous children that they had no value, every other school in this country was busy teaching non-indigenous children that indigenous children had no value. Wow, uh, those are powerful words coming from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau during National Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, which was celebrated yesterday, and uh, the Prime Minister saying that. Uh, I am one of those people that are uh, of age uh, 60, I turned 60 this year, and and I remember going through school and thinking, Canada is really young, Canada's got no history, Canada is all about immigration, Canada's completely different from what I am hearing now, what I am learning now, what I am teaching myself now, as, you know, and let's be honest, it started with Kamloops and the residential school discoveries. So... Um, uh, I'm going back and questioning what I've learned. I'm going back and questioning the history I was taught. And there was nothing about indigenous peoples. And if there was, it was very, very little and nothing like we are talking about today. But one thing I can tell you, I was never taught to hate anyone. I was never taught to devalue anyone. Now, obviously, you could say by not teaching us, you know, telling us the whole story, by not telling us the rest of the story, we were, you know, the indigenous peoples were being devalued and we're, we're not giving them the respect they deserve. But to say we were taught to disrespect them, taught to devalue them, that's incorrect. And I think that's divisiveness not unification. That's not truth and reconciliation. That's not true at all. And if it's an example that is alluding to something else, I think the prime minister deserves, uh, the Canadians deserve an explanation from the prime minister. Because again, uh, we need to do more to find out about our uh, indigenous heritage, about the indigenous people that were here long before us, long before the settlers. And as Canadians, I feel we need to know that as well, as well as the indigenous community needs to tell the story. We all need to learn from this and to get the education we didn't get as kids. But to say we were taught to hate and to devalue, I think that puts up more barriers than it takes down. And I'm not sure it moves the discussion forward. Let's bring in Ken Coates, Professor, Canada Chair, Research Chair in Regional Innovation, uh, Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan, and with us now. Ken, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Always doing well. Good to talk to you. What are your thoughts on what the Prime Minister said? Because I'm one of those Canadians that's getting behind this movement. I'm one of these Canadians that want to learn about my history and what I was denied as a kid. But I'm not sure this is accurate. So I, I wish our Prime Minister would learn something about subtlety. Um, because history is never quite as clear and black and white as he wants to portray it. And that's certainly uh, this instance. Um, I'm I'm an historian by training. I, I sort of grew up in the, my high school years, university years, studying history. At no point were we taught to hate 
the Aboriginal people. You could make it absolutely clear, though, um, that the Aboriginal people were left out of our history, as you've already suggested. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the until the 1970s, the we only talked about the Aboriginal folks in their in their historical relationships until the fur trade ended. We sort of they were included until the 1870s, disappeared mm-hmm. with the rebellions in 1885 sort of all evaporated after that with a couple of spots here and there, um, some acts of cruelty or bravery and by Indigenous folks, nothing nothing very systematic. But I would add this on the other side, is that there's, it's also clear, if you look at the way teaching was done, where, where Indigenous students were in the classroom, um, they were quite consistently sort of ignored rather than, than vilified. Yeah. Um, I've known lots of Aboriginal folks of my generation who were classrooms where where the teachers would treat them quite differently it wasn't the content of what they were saying as much as the fact that they were not seen as being as likely to succeed as likely to go on to college or university as likely to be part of the economy as a whole so we got lots of things to atone for lots of things to understand but the prime minister's suggestion that the curriculum in high schools and elementary schools across Canada, I guess by implication universities and colleges, systematically spread hatred against Aboriginal people is actually simply not true. Uh, and, and you know, I want to give uh, credit where credit is due here. I, I think one of, uh, one of the accomplishments, great accomplishments, that this Prime Minister has had is he has helped open uh, Canadians' eyes to this. He has uh, been a big supporter of truth and reconciliation despite not showing up for the National Day. He has, I, I can't think of another Prime Minister who's done more for that. But to turn around and say this, to me, is just digging trenches and being divisive. I'm kind of hoping that over time we get away from that. And like I say, we, need, we yeah. need far more subtleties, far more nuances. You know, there were actually some, if you talk to residential school survivors, even people who had a bad experience overall and were separated from their family and lost their language, uh, they were not necessarily themselves physically mistreated, for example. You know, yeah. and we need to understand these processes in, in a much more nuanced kind, kind of way. The Prime Minister has done an incredible job of increasing financial resources. His mm-hmm. government has made, made reconciliation sort of a buzzword, uh, sort of a, a national core, national commitment. Yeah. Um, I can't say that he's been done a very good job of keeping the Indigenous communities on board. There's a lot of frustration uh, with the Prime Minister because he, he says one thing and doesn't necessarily follow through. You mentioned him missing National Re- in, in National Reconciliation Day, um, you know, last last September. Uh, that was a huge blow to his credibility. Mm-hmm. But you know, I love to hear him saying powerful things. I loved him using his bully pulpit to remind Canadians of the need for for reconciliation, for understanding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think I hope that in time this conversation will broaden out and become a little bit more sophisticated um, as we go along. Um, and then, in fact, we'll, we'll hear Aboriginal people telling us more what it was like to be in classrooms, not so much where people were taught to hate them, but where, in mm-hmm. fact, they disappeared. If you're an Aboriginal person and you're in a classroom in rural Saskatchewan in the 1960s and 1970s, um, and you don't hear a word about Indigenous people, they just disappear entirely from the landscape of Canada. They're not part of the history. They're not part of the culture, not part of the politics. Um, that leaves you feeling completely ignored and, and totally, totally marginalized. Sometimes it's the absence of words more than the active engagement with words that causes the greatest pain. Um, and so we need to talk about things in that way and, and get away from sort of trying to create, you know, bitter divisions. Um, Many of the Aboriginal folks that I speak to, including a lot of the elders, say, you know, reconciliation means sort of forgiving each other and and sort of moving forward together and finding that common line that you talked about, which involves a lot more education for non-Indigenous people and a lot more listening to Indigenous folks than we have in the past. So, you know, the Prime Minister is enthusiastic. you got to give him credit for that. Yeah. Are Canadians now looking for this information, starving for this information, looking to see what the real story is? Do you find? So the short answer is yes and no. Um, So if you look at the number of books published on Aboriginal history and Aboriginal topics, it's extraordinarily impressive. And a lot of the books now by Indigenous people, some of them by non-Indigenous people who followed the topics for many, many years. So and those books sell well. So we know people like like Thomas King. We know uh, Drew Hayden. We know these names of Lee Maracle. These are these are wonderful writers who've done a tremendous amount of explaining Indigenous life and society and the Thompson Highways of the world, and and they do really really well. Um, but that's you're talking to sort of the 
25% of Canadians, mm. probably less than that, who are actively engaged in reading and finding out and collecting the information. It's out there. Uh, Aboriginal People's Television Network does a great job with giving insight yeah. into Indigenous uh, history and, and culture. Lots of radio programs, including your own, CBC nationally and regionally, they're covering a lot of it. If I would say one thing, though, I think that for the majority of Canadians, and this is not a central issue, if you look and see where they mm. rank the the top 10 issues facing Canada, um, Aboriginal issues are very often, if they're on the list, they're toward the, the eighth, ninth, and 10th spot. They're not their number one or two or three. They're, they're quite a ways further down. Um, and the problem in Canada is that so many of our announcements and our commitments have big numbers attached to them. We're spending $300 million on Indigenous mm. housing. We're spending $200 million on Indigenous education. Most people think the government is solving the problem uh, through just spending of money. Whereas, there you have like, it. If you listen, even the prime minister is sort of saying this. It really involves people engaging and getting to know indigenous peoples and cultures more directly. Ken Coates with us, professor, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation, Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan. Ken, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Fascinating discussion. Be well. Take care. Bye now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The January 6th hearings continue. We're now hearing that, um, I guess there was originally six hearings, and now there might even be more. At the beginning of this, uh, the chatter was, everybody's already made up their mind. Uh, this is going to be nothing new. But it seems that uh, there's a bit more traction and a bit more interest in uh, the hearings uh, surrounding January 6th. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, with us now. Now, Elliot, always fun. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, good afternoon, Scott. So it's interesting how uh, this has gone from, oh, it's just going to be uh, another big Hollywood production sort of thing to obviously having meat on the bones and many are, are paying attention to this. Um, will the, the angle I want to come at you with this, Elliot, is are we seeing more and more Republicans realizing that this is the past and not the future for them? And could this lead to an opportunity to a rebirth of this Republican Party? We should probably start with who's watching. It turns out it is getting, as you indicated, a surprisingly large audience, given the fact that we're talking about something that happened a while ago. And meanwhile, there's a lot of pressing issues on people's plates, uh, starting with inflation and price at the pump and that sort of thing. But it's apparently getting a greater audience than the Olympics and the Emmys and the Tonys, and so it's getting a respectable watch. Now, the second question is, will it make a difference? Will this, um, will this set of hearings do anything to move the needle in terms of what's coming down the road politically? Uh, you mentioned the Republicans in particular. I think we should start where Liz Cheney started on the opening, on the opening uh, hearing. Hmm. She, of course, is... <laughs> uh, this Cheney of Wyoming. So this is the Republican vice chair of the of the hearings, and she has uh, been very, very forthright in her stance. And she said this in terms of answering your question. Tonight, I say this to our Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will one day come a day when Donald Trump is gone, hmm. but your dishonor will remain. So how many Republicans are listening? We don't really have a good um, empirical base for answering the question, except that all the straws in the wind suggest, no, uh, the Republicans have become an increasingly, uh, to quote a Republican uh, uh, pollster and, and uh, somebody who does a lot of focus groups, it's becoming increasingly a radicalized party. So that being said, uh, that's the umbrella under uh, Donald Trump. Is that going to flame out? Uh, whether people find him fascinating and interesting and love to hear his little tidbits and, and, and actualities and such, uh, at the end of the day, when do they say, you know, we don't need this guy to get elected, and this just brings us more problem than benefit? There's been a running tally of the people that he's endorsed and how they've done in the primaries. I remember a lot of states are holding primaries now. The Republicans hold theirs, the Democrats hold theirs to decide who's going to run against each other. Uh, in, you know, November 3rd is coming. And we were 138 days to the midterms or some such. So we have a situation where the Republican primaries on the tally, oh, he's, he's maybe below 50 percent. 
oh wait, he's really made a big difference. So my my view on this is uh, Trumpism has won every primary in the Republican side that I know of. Hmm. Donald Trump, in terms of his endorsements, has had a very impressive run. He's he's picked out uh, in Pennsylvania. He picked a, a third place or fourth place candidate and won in Ohio, and that was uh, Dr. Oz of television fame. In Ohio, he backed a candidate who had originally actually been quite opposed to him, a Republican, uh, not a never-Trumper, but uh, somebody who wrote a really good book, you know, Hillbilly Elegy, went all in for Trump, and he he now is going to be running six, uh, against the Republican, uh, the Democratic challenger. Uh, very colorful guy in Pennsylvania. That's going to be a race to watch. Pennsylvania is always <laughs> Scott a race to watch. But Scott Federman had a, a stroke. Part, I mean, it's, it's just crazy stuff going on. But what the bottom line in all this is, is that the Republican Party, whether it's Donald Trump leading it, or we might see something like a DeSantis-Trump showdown at some point, or all of the legal problems and maybe health problems and other issues might catch up with Donald Trump. There will be a MAGA candidate leading the top of the ticket and MAGA people up and down the ticket on the Republican primary side. Elliot Tepper with us, emeritus professor, political science, Carleton University. The Donald Trump show doesn't seem to be over yet. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And, and to you, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, annual inflation rate. We've been talking about it all afternoon. 7.7% now, the highest in 40 years, 1983, uh, the year that it was uh, last this high, driven uh, pretty much by soaring gas prices, which uh, not only affects you at the pump, but also everything at the grocery store and everything that arrives on a truck or any other way. So uh, obviously everybody is feeling the punch, uh, pinch right across the board. And even in the United States, uh, the, President Biden is talking about cutting gas taxes there uh, in order to provide some sort of relief. Christia Freeland asked that by her counterpart in the United States, and she said, well, it's different up here. We don't have the same problems, and we have rebates and stuff coming back, which I, I, I don't think I've got mine yet. Uh, but uh, anyway, is this going to change uh, the course moving forward, or uh, is Justin Trudeau just deaf to all of this because it goes counter to his climate change plan, which is his priority? Let's bring in Eric Ham, Professor of Economics, Monetary Growth, Toronto Metropolitan University, and is with us now. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are, too. So far, so good. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the U.S. seeming to uh, provide some relief, but Canada really even reluctant to say we have the problem. It's different here. Yeah, it is different here. Our government's made up of people that might as well call themselves Tommy because they're deaf, dumb and blind. I mean, it is absolutely <laughs> as, as somebody who watches policy. I don't understand how these statistics can come in. This isn't narrative. This is statistics. Energy prices, 34.8%. Gasoline, 48%. Food is up about 8 or 9%. The whole system is in a spiral. Prices are spiraling upwards, and Canadians know that the pinch of it. They know whether it's the gas station, the grocery store, or everything in between. But you hear the Bank of Canada saying they're doing all they can do. And as much as people may be frustrated, they're actually right, because they only have one proverbial bullet in that proverbial gun, and they are firing it. And and they're going to continue firing it until these numbers come down. But the government holds some cards. The government could do some things to increase disposable income, but they're doing none of them. And I think for Canadians, I hate to speak on behalf of 35 million people, but I think that's the frustrating part, that they see their government elected officials doing nothing, Scott. Why do you think they're doing nothing, Eric? I mean, as you said, uh, there it is in black and white. Yeah, black and white and red all over. The problem is, is that the more you look into the policy statements of the government and the policy statements of the Bank of Canada, I am not 100% convinced that the Bank of Canada isn't the only group out there worried about and fighting inflation. Christian Freeland makes absolutely no sense when she speaks, and that's not a new phenomenon. But I don't really believe, and I, I hate to say this, and the listeners may get upset, but they can Twitter me if they want, the government is not yet looking at inflation and trying to anchor it 
or reduce it. Right now, it is not in their wheelhouse. They have an agenda. We know what it is. They've announced it many times in, in terms of things like green energy and reducing pipelines, indigenous things. All of these things are wonderful, and I can get behind any of them in a time where prices aren't going up so fast that the average consumer may seriously find themselves unable to put food on the table or worse, can't afford the table. And that's the way we're heading right now. I am old enough to remember the 80s. I'm old enough to remember when interest rates hit 21% and my parents' friends had to walk away from their homes. And there's an ominous parallel, Scott. That's the direction we're heading. I don't want to scare anybody, but don't kid yourself. This is going to get way worse before it gets better. I'm playing devil's advocate here, Eric. What about, hey, this is all about changing habits. You know, you punch people in the gut with this gas, man. They're going to go right to EVs. More people are interested in EVs. This is how we save the planet, buddy. Well, that's the way that your prime minister speaks, because he says, let's take an 85 or a $90,000 car and give people back $10,000 to purchase it. But how many people do you think in this country are at the dealership today looking at that $85,000 car? It's rhetoric. It's government rhetoric. And it keeps, when you digest, it says the same thing. We know this is out there, but we are not prepared to deal with it now. We will let our arm of the government, the Bank of Canada, do the heavy lifting. Call us later. And I frankly think it's reprehensible. Uh, I think I was going to ask you this last time we were going to chat. Uh, we chatted, Eric, but I ran out of time. Do you think with the chatter that Biden has around lowering gas taxes that he's open to the discussion of Keystone again? Well, I really hope so. I really hope so, because especially in a country like Canada, where natural resources and energy are one of the things that we can produce, we have a comparative advantage or a specialization or every other economic watchword that means we can do this. We don't need to rely on other countries as much as we do. But again, our prime minister and our government doesn't seem to want to exploit those comparative advantages and those specializations. And so we are just hung out to dry by other countries and their energy prices. So do I hope that our government's listening to the president of the United States? Yes, I do. But I always hope our government's listening and they never are to my knowledge. Uh, we know that Canada produces less than 2% of greenhouse gases. Uh, we're more interested in keeping our laundry clean than helping the other countries that are up to 30% and whatever, whether those are India's, Russia's, or, or China's, or the United States. Uh, is it not better to get our cleaner stuff to market and help those countries than reduce our 2% that apparently is killing the planet? Yeah, but that's one small area. Sure, if you're gonna if you're gonna concentrate, if you're gonna take a partial look at that one sliver, yes. But if you look at energy in a broader picture, natural gas in a broader picture, crude oil in a natural picture, it doesn't take Scott Radley, our university's most proud graduate, to know that we could be doing much, much more to help our population to bring down a wider, wider variety of prices. You're talking about a sliver, and I'd agree with you about that sliver, but that is such a small thing on the grander scale. And people that are going to walk away from their homes and their mortgages, they're frankly not concerned about that today, nor are they concerned about any type of green agenda. They're concerned about feeding their family. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A new survey from Angus Reid. You know, we love the surveys. The majority of Canadians not pleased with how their provincial governments are handling health care. According to this uh, Angus Reid report, uh, polling uh, Canadians, 72% said they were critical of their provincial government when it comes to health care. We all know uh, that health care is a provincial issue. However, when healthcare started, you know the healthcare that Canada boasts so much about and sticks its nose in the air and thinks we're better than everybody else because we have this and we should be greatly appreciative for it. But the global pandemic has showed some great flaws in this system and we always seem to blame the provinces. What we have found during COVID-19 was all of the provinces were, uh, were straddled with the same issues. They've got great plans. They have no money. So now the focus is back on the provinces. Is this where it should be? How do we bring the feds and the provinces together in order to really solve this problem? Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute and with us now. Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. 
So, uh, again, here we go, uh, coming out of this pandemic or wherever we are in this. Uh, everybody, please get updated and vaccinated and such. But, again, we don't seem to be focusing on what the, it seemed to be the main issue during this pandemic was that all of the provinces were experiencing this, and it was a federal, uh, it was a funding issue, a funding formula issue. Uh, where are we now in this discussion, where we are in this pandemic? Are we focusing on this? So you've uh, given me about three or four great questions to answer there. Maybe I'll jump at the funding one right up. Uh, so as uh, your listeners may know, the feds currently pay for about 22 to 23 percent of what the provinces spend on health care. Now, in the days when we were being enticed, when the provinces were being enticed by the feds to build a health care program, the feds said, hey, you go ahead and build something and we'll pay 50 percent of whatever you spend. So it started with uh, hospitals and then hospital services and then finally medical services in the late 1960s. And that was the capstone on Medicare. So once the provinces did all this building and got all these things going, uh, the first Trudeau government in 1977 said, okay, that's enough. We can't even come close to paying for 50%. So they passed the Established Programs Financing Act and they said, we'll just pay block payments to you guys. No more blank checks. You're on the hook for whatever you spend on health care. And, and they never even did spend 50%. You know, they, they, they didn't pay for 50% of what the provinces spent. And so that's been the debate for the last 35, 40 years. Uh, provinces saying, hey, help out more. You're, you promised in the old days. And the Fed said, no, we, we, we gave that back to you in the late 1970s. And, you know, and, and instead of discussing, uh, discussing what you're talking about, Sean, instead we're talking about uh, pharmacare and dental care and daycare, which are all starting out the exact same way as Medicare did. And are they following the same template and going to end up in the same place? that the health system is right now. So why are we talking about provinces? What more can the provinces do to fix this? Well, that's the fascinating thing. We've, we've held the provinces up and said, okay, this is your baby, you guys. You're in charge of running this, and yet they don't have the tools to run it. And at the same mm. time, the feds have veto power. So they say, yeah, okay, it's yours to do, but we're going to pay 20% of the tab, which is actually closer to a tip, at least when you go to a restaurant. And and so we're going to pay that, but we have veto power so that if you do anything we don't like, we're not even going to pay that 22%. So essentially, the feds can set the marching orders. The provinces are on the hook for actually delivering care. And when voters and patients see that things are struggling, naturally they say, well, the provinces do something about this. And so it, it's, it's a real mess. If you want to dig into the nitty gritty, it's actually a governance problem. And governance is about who gets to make decisions. So the most important decision about every decision is who gets to make the decision. And that's a discussion we have not wanted to have for about 50 years now. Uh, and, and it must be frustrating coming out of this pandemic, having the discussions we're having or had and say, oh, this has got to change. Clearly, it's not this issue. It's a funding issue. And yet here we are going back to, to, to blaming the provinces. So are there any sort of negotiations, discussions going on? We know stuff moves pretty slow with governments. But are, like I remember Premier Horgan uh, of the NDP in British Columbia leading the charge of all the provinces. He was the spokesperson say, we got to do this. We got to change this is there any sort of meetings or any sort of discussions going on to even address this well there was a big meeting i believe it's two and a half maybe three weeks ago don't quote me on that date but what the western provinces got together and said listen we need help we are dying here the one good thing about all of this you've mentioned covid a few times i mean covid was terrible and i'm glad you made the shout out you know go be safe be healthy get protected get vaccinated and all the rest um the 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 thing with COVID is it put healthcare at the front burner of everybody's, um, you know, mm -hmm. agenda list, idealist, but it was, it was right in front of everybody's face for two years. So before only 4% of the population, and, and it's still true today, only 4% of the population ever gets admitted to acute care services. So, you know, you, you need your a surgery, so you're admitted mm -hmm. to hospital. And so only 4% of the population per year is ever getting an inside peek at what's going on. So most of yeah. us, you know, we'll have a twisted ankle or we get a rash or whatever, or we get our annual physical and, and okay, the weights are frustrating in the family doc's office, but overall, we're, there's not a ton to complain about. 
And we live on the dream of what Medicare is to us, as opposed to the reality yeah. of what it provides. COVID flipped that on its head, put it right in front of our faces. And so now people are saying, hey, we gave you a pass for a couple of years during COVID. We, we thought you did a good job. As, and that's what the Angus Reid survey shows. But now they're saying we need to do better. No more of this lockdown business to save the system. Why don't you guys actually build the system and deliver the care you promised in the first place? And that's, you know, you bring up an interesting point too, Sean, in the latter stages of this pandemic, it wasn't any longer about, it wasn't any longer about saving us from this disease. It was about saving the healthcare system and the exhausted healthcare employees and, and, and services and such from, from being overrun. It, it wasn't the disease that was killing us. It's the, it was the shoddy Medicare system. Yeah, we had no no backup, no resilience, right? And so um, it's been known since the 1950s. A system runs ideally. You get the most efficiency out of it, whether it's the 401, you know, the 400 series of highways in Southern Ontario or the lineup at your local Tim Hortons or whatever coffee shop you like to go to. Um, that line will be most efficient at around 83% capacity. You'll get the most people through with the shortest waiting time. And so in Canada, especially in Ontario, we've run our hospitals at way over 90%. You know, sometimes people yeah. are saying we've got 100% capacity, 105% capacity. And so the whole system just grinds to a halt. And when it grinds to a halt, not only are people not getting the care they need, but now everybody's panicked that we literally could have a system collapse from just a couple hundred extra people in hospital. You know, we're a province of 15 and a half million people, yeah. a hundred extra people in hospital just doesn't make sense. So that, that, that just that, that blows me away how a few hundred in ICU is cripples a province of 14 million. All right, we're almost out of time. We are out of time, but um, are we learning anything from this survey? Are, are we moving forward? Absolutely. So healthcare's top issue in voters' minds, the thing that we need to change is to move it from a top issue at all times into a decisional issue at election time. So you'll find at election, people say, yeah, I care about healthcare, but it's not going to change my vote. We need to shift that. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. Fascinating discussion, Sean. Thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Lots to chat about. Michael is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, yeah, so far, so good. Michael, we're going to come at you from all different angles here, uh, and I know uh, you're up for it. Uh, inflation up 7.7%, a uh, 40-year high record on this, uh, 1983, uh, back to the time when it was so high. Your thoughts on this, and specifically around energy and gasoline, uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, saying the other day that you know he's going to try to get gas taxes lowered. That doesn't even seem to be on the lips of Justin Trudeau or Christy no. Freeland, who said, who said after her counterpart in the U.S. said the same thing, that, no, it's different up here. We have a different set of circumstances. What are your thoughts, and is the Prime Minister listening? Uh, Prime Minister's not listening. I mean, I think we can do the bottom one because it's easy. The answer is no. Canada is not going to change because the carbon tax, or the national carbon tax, is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's pet project. It's been his pet project before he implemented or foisted it upon the Canadian taxpayers. And it will still be. And they will defend it to the nigh, to the last day that they're in government. They will always defend it and they will not change their position. I mean, obviously, they'll start pointing and saying, but look, gas prices are coming down. But it has nothing to do with Canada. Quite the opposite. You know, it's world conditions or global conditions that cause this and make it go up and down. But the fact that the carbon tax is a part of it has added at least somewhere in the neighborhood. And you can ask Dan McTague and other people of this who are friends and follow this closely at least 20 to 30 cents per liter yeah. at the gas pump, which is enormous. So if, if Justin Trudeau and the Liberals really wanted to do something, they could knock that out, and that would be nice. In terms of inflation, uh, very quick. It's, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, please, please go on. Okay, no, no, no. I was just going to go quickly to inflation. Um, yeah, this is the worst rate we've seen. 7.7% is the lowest since 1983. It's disastrous. We knew it was coming, obviously, because of COVID-19. And the fact that the Canadian government, much like other world governments, have propped up our economies artificially and the amount of money that was spent out for 
emergency relief measures to individuals and businesses, while certainly understandable in part, also then started to go into different directions. And then when you looked at the enormous amount of spending and unnecessary on top of it, plus things that have happened, say, with the Liberal NDP agreement that runs till 2025 with National Pharmacare, health care, affordable housing, et cetera, et cetera, when you put it all together, the 7.7% rate for inflation is going to be an enormous shock to the system. It, as I, you know, I and others have always said the same thing. If you're going to do something like that, try to bring it in gradually where it doesn't hit people very hard all at once. I know that they have to, quote-unquote, play catch-up a bit, but when you basically just throw things like that, you knock the economic system off its equilibrium and make it very difficult for people to survive day-to-day, Again, you just hope Canadians are paying attention for a change and are listening and are furious with what they see. Uh, Obviously, there doesn't seem to be any immediate solution to this. Can the Prime Minister just keep wishing that this goes away? I mean, as time goes on, this will get more difficult. Will he not have to react? He would hope so. I mean, I think he is wishing for it to go away. I mean, this is the same man who believes that you know, deficits and debts, they can just solve themselves and that he's not doesn't really understand the economics behind it. Hmm. No one expects people to be a leader of a country and a genius when it comes to finances and economics. So if Justin Trudeau admits that he's not a genius with that, that's perfectly fine. The fact that he basically says, I don't pay that much attention, which we've heard at different periods of time between 2015 and the present, that should be extremely worrisome. Not because the person he puts in charge of the finance ministry, Christia Freeland, doesn't have more knowledge than him. She does. It's the problem is right at the very top. If your world leader, your national leader has no interest whatsoever or is confused by it or doesn't care about it or is more interested in little fluffy, sparkly things, you know, lighting up the sky, which unfortunately, whether liberals in this country like it or not, that's the prime minister who's in charge right now. Justin Trudeau just embarrasses himself time and time again. And yeah, he should do something about it. And yes, he should get involved. But it wouldn't surprise me if he's just hoping it'll disappear or, as you said, wishing it away. Uh, Have you noticed, Michael, the tone in the media changing over the last two to three weeks? I mean, we've been saying, we've been screaming this stuff forever. But it seems that, you know, oh, that's not the case. Everything's sunny ways. And now I'm really seeing a change, whether it's the Toronto Star, Chantel Hibbert, Susan Mm -hmm. Delacorte. I mean, we're really seeing them be very critical of the prime minister now. Is the tide changing for him? A little bit. Um, certainly a lot of calmness and political commentators on the right, and I would put myself in there, we've been screaming and yelling about it for years. P- radio hosts, TV hosts like you have been screaming and yelling about it for years as well. But now you're right. Some of the liberals and centrists is probably the best way to describe people like Chantal Hébert and Sue Delacorte, both who I know are both fine people, but obviously think differently on politics, economics, culture, and other issues than you and I do, and quite some of the listeners do. But it's interesting that the tone has changed. But not even just from the columnist. You also see a bit of a difference in tone from the reporting, from the Toronto Star and other like-minded papers. And you also are seeing it a little bit more in the editorials. Now, I know newspaper editorials haven't mattered since the days of Charles Randolph Hearst, and it's all completely different today. You know, it's not as big a thing but when you see the editorial position changing, and that, again, is run by either or managed by either the ownership, the publisher, or a consortium on top, it means that people who are in a very senior position at newspapers, left and right, are getting frustrated with what they see. Mm. So by seeing it, it means that a change, well, a change may be a coming, but there's certainly a change in tone the past few weeks. So I would agree. Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and speechwriter for the former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. In regards to gas, taxes keep rising them to the point where people can't get to work. And so not only do you lose the income from the gas tax revenue, but then you'll also lose the income from people's income tax. They say they can't afford to lower taxes. In my opinion, they can't afford not to.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.